Welcome to the feature series, How Roger Penske Changed the Indy 500 on the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, which celebrates the most successful entrant at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway on the 50th anniversary of his first event in 1969. Presented by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, and Bell Racing Helmets, a long-standing partner of Team Penske, this 15-part series spans some of the greatest drivers, managers, mechanics, engineers, and the man himself, Roger Penske, to document the captain's vast influence on America's defining motor race, the Indy 500, and in many instances, the sport as a whole. We'll also be joined by a reporter who covered Penske's Indy debut a half century ago and some of his fiercest rivals, many of whom admit to being fans of the 82-year-old icon. Our guest on this episode of How Roger Penske Changed the Indy 500 is the inspiration for it all, Roger Penske. Roger, we're obviously celebrating you and this amazing team now in your 50th anniversary of competing here at the Indianapolis 500. Would love to start off with a topic that has come up from a few people I've interviewed who've said they believe your days as a driver would have been a pretty significant influence to what you saw here at Indianapolis on your debut as an entrant and also as being a team owner in sports car racing, possibly. So we know the team's legacy is so centered on Indianapolis, but I'm curious what comes to mind of your time as both a driver and an entrant in sports car racing that maybe contributed to such a strong debut. Well, I think, you know, as a driver, you certainly understand uh, the trials and tribulations of having a good car, maybe not such a good car, and obviously results. And, uh, you know, I had a good run as a driver in sports cars, uh, had a chance to take a test here in Indianapolis, uh, but because of my work at Alcoa, I couldn't get off, and Mario Andretti took the test, so I think that all worked out well for him, and I went on to be in business. But early on as a sports car driver you know I needed uh, sponsorship and I remember going to uh, DuPont in Wilmington and Tellar was a a coolant uh, uh, for the for the radiator and we got sponsorship I think it was uh, about four hundred dollars a race so things have certainly changed right now but uh, (laughs) that tied it all together and I remember in SCCA they didn't want you to have any sponsorship on the car so I used to tape it up and then the tape would come off about the second lap but uh, that was uh, that was those days. But I think as we looked at Indianapolis and, you know, having Donahue, you know, as a driver that had been so successful with us and, you know, Sun Oil Company was, you know, our major sponsor, you know, in our Can-Am days and the things that we were doing, certainly from a overall standpoint in Trans Am and things that were important to us in sports cars, uh, we were able to uh, reach out to Sunoco and talk about a program, you know, coming to Indianapolis and I said it would take probably three years before we could win the race. It turned out it was four years. We were led, obviously, had a strong car in 71 and then had a gearbox problem. But <clears throat> I think the experience as a driver, you know, dealing with uh, certainly great sponsors in sports cars and having the continuity, which we've done from a sports car basis to an Indy car, the B2B part of this was important. Uh, and Son Oil Company was uh, really the first real world-class sponsor that I had, and we brought them to Indy with a program uh, to to try to succeed and win the race. One of the fun stories that never gets old about the team's introduction here in 1969 was the fish-out-of-water approach 
college kids, everything pressed and clean. A little bit of a, going a little bit of a wild, wild west culture here that Indianapolis was known. Tell us about that. I know that you guys were, I don't know if ridiculed a little bit, but I know that there was a little bit of sensitivity to, hmm, these guys are a little bit different than what we're used to. What was it that you were just trying to represent from the outset? Well, I was really oblivious to maybe conversations behind my back, quite honestly. Uh, We came here like we went anyplace else. You know, we represented our sponsors with yellow shirts and the logos, and we decided when we came that we would put yellow tile down on our floor, and I think that's what really killed everybody because every night we pulled everything out and polished and waxed the floor, so that was somewhat of a change uh, change of course for most people but you know you had guys like Andy Granatelli that you know STP he was uh, certainly championing his brand and overall you looked at a lot of the cars in the early days uh, you know they were representing certain sponsors but we came here with a with a vision uh, to win uh, Donahue was uh, certainly focused in engineering cat and uh, you know we put it together Carl Kinehofer had been a great uh, chief mechanic for me when I drove the Porsche Spiders, and to me we had a group of people that were, you know, worked together. Uh, the Indianapolis Motor Speedway was a vision I had from the time I came here with my dad in 1951, and obviously wanted to compete here either as a driver, as a car owner. I couldn't do it as a driver, but certainly as a car owner, it worked out well, and you know the rest is history. You mentioned Mark Donahue. Curious to know, RP. How much of Mark's imprint do you believe remains on this team 50 years since your debut, that unfair advantage uh, that's so heavily associated with him and you? But looking here, 2019, month of May, do you still see Mark's imprint? Well, I think, uh, you know, we picked up, uh, I guess, this uh, theme of unfair advantage. What we were trying to do is, you know, go to the next step. You know, we were never good enough, wasn't good enough. And I think that uh, there was a lot of monkey see, monkey do, you know, in this sport over time where people copied the guy next to him. We tried to go a step further. I remember when we got the McLaren and we went to test it uh, uh, at Phoenix, we actually took the wings off and Mark ran the car without the wings. And then we put the wings on and we saw the, the effect of the downforce. And, uh, this gave us opportunities across many things. The first time we came with air jacks and, uh, you know, we had the long wheel nuts on the Trans Am car and, uh, the air guns and just, it came on and on. These were all things that were obvious and uh, very quick for other people to pick up but i remember putting disc brakes on the uh, on the javelin that gave us a very competitive car in trans am so to me mark was one that uh, you know he never said no and we were able to execute and i think with his racing knowledge and technically savvy how he was it gave us a chance to combine those and i certainly was interested in you know risk no risk there's no reward so you know, I pushed and, uh, you know, I never had anybody turn back and say, no, we're not going to do that. And I think that gave us, you know, somewhat of an advantage that people called it unfair. Since 1954, the Indianapolis Motor Speedway has served as the proving grounds for the world's most legendary helmet brand. From Jimmy Bryan to Mario Andretti and Elio Castroneves, Bell Helmets has and continues to protect some of the all-time greats. Follow the journey on social media at Bell Racing HQ or by visiting bellracing.com. You like to use the term human capital when you refer to the members of Team Penske today, in the past. What does that 
how do you define that? What does that mean to you? Because I know it's a, it's a, it's set in as a term of reverie. Well, human capital, uh, you know, you can talk about uh, capital in your business, which is money, it's bonds, it's uh, returns, but human capital is people. In my, my language, it's all of, it's just people. Instead of having, talking and people, it's our human capital. That's the value of the company. And to me, in many cases, uh, we can borrow money, we can do things, but you just can't get good people. And I think you got to grow them and you got to have them want to come and work for you. So we say human capital is the top of anything we do. Another big part of Team Penske's legacy here at the 500 and just throughout so many years of the IndyCar operation was Penske Cars, the decision to not buy an off-the-shelf name, the brand. Where did the germination of maybe we should do this ourselves, where did that start and what what stands out from that legacy that went on for decades? Well, I think that, uh, you know, we were, I drove a Cooper uh, Monaco and we had a relationship uh, with the guys in the UK with Cooper and many of the people. And I think that I saw an opportunity to really, because the cottage industry was really there building Formula One type cars that... uh, I could buy this shop from Graham McRae and, and put a team together, and uh, that's what we did. And we felt that uh, that would give us an unfair advantage, and certainly for many years it did. And I remember you know, coming here in 78 with a car that was like a Formula One car, you know, with a Cosworth in it. Yeah. And Mears could have won that race that year, and we had a couple things that went, went wrong, and he won it, and obviously in 79. But I think it was the ability to, to uh, chart our own future, uh, have the ability to build what we wanted and not everyone else had one. Uh, on the other hand, many times we went down the road, we were not successful and it was less expensive. And certainly, uh, you know, we could be, we could do what everybody else does. Then it was about execution and the driving, but, uh, Penske cars was, uh, was just a key piece of it. You know, Nick Gouzet, uh, Heinz Hofer, uh, Derek Walker, uh, you know, just you think about, uh, Clive Howell, all of these people all came out of Penske cars and they were really, you know, the bedrock and foundation of a lot of our success. And, uh, Nigel Bennett, uh, Jeff Ferris, just, uh, uh, you just think about some of the people that, uh, that came with us, uh, for, from the design perspective that really set the stage, uh, you know, for our success. A couple of closing questions, RP. I love this aspect about you i'm about to mention because i don't believe most people realize this i think most fans would say 17 indy 500 wins you must come here just chest full ego proud domination minded that isn't necessarily the case you don't show up here expecting to dominate if anything you come here wondering if you've done enough well there's no question about it i mean this place you win it one year and then you go to the next and uh, to me it's about this next race and uh, it's hard to believe we won 17 to be honest with you if I had to go back and think about how it all happened it would probably take me a long time to understand each lap I do know that uh, looking at some statistics uh, here lately that we won 38 percent of the time that we entered here Uh, we led 2,000 over 2,300 laps was more than 11 races so that I do understand and understand the, the commitment. But the more you race here, the more you prepare. And I think the little things are what takes people out here. In many cases, we've made those mistakes. But, you know, I don't look at we're some big guys that come in the speedway and try to take over. Maybe people think we do. 
from the outside. We're really low key here. Uh, we come, we, I know it's a tremendous hill to climb. We come here in 2019. There's a lot of good cars, a lot of good teams. And to me, uh, you know, we're here to compete. People want to beat us and we want to beat them. And, uh, we have a requirement to deliver for our sponsors. That's why they're with us. And, uh, to me, it's, it's one of the biggest tests we take, you know, it's your annual meeting. I might say in business. The central theme here of this series of features is how you and the team have changed and influenced Indy 500. Are you aware of how much through your efforts, those who you've hired, almost half of the Indy 500s ever contested have had you involved in some way, shape, or form? Are you aware of how much of an imprint you've made here? Well, uh, you know, my name's on the door, but uh, there's no way I can take all the credit, you know, for what's what's taken place and what will take place in the future, good or bad. I think it's a team effort. I want a flat organization. We go racing. You know, the guy that drives the truck here, the one that airs the tires or cleans the shop is just as important as the driver. And the day we don't think they are as important is a day we'll never win. And to me, that's, you know, that's our profile. Let's close on this, RP. How has the Indy 500 changed you? Well, I think uh, what it's really done, it's given me an opportunity as a businessman to take the notoriety and the success uh, and the winning and use that as the theme throughout our business. It's given us the ability to attract people to come and work for our company. We've built a brand around uh, performance uh, and quality. And these relationships that I've been able to generate through Indy and the motor car companies, General Motors, Ford, you know, Chrysler, uh, Toyota, Honda, Mercedes-Benz, all of these have kind of germinated, you know, from our racing success because it's amazing when you represent someone's brand, the top of the organization all the way down through sees what you've done. And I think what I've been able to do as an individual is tie that business to business together, you know, with our racing. And uh, to me, uh, that's given me uh, a tremendous advantage over many other people because of that. Thank you, my friend. All right. And that was how Roger Penske changed the Indy 500. You can catch this series in more than 500 episodes at the brand new marshallpruittpodcast.com site. All brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, and Bell Racing Helmets. <laughs>